From TV News, this is The Stakes, where we're all wondering if we can escape Earth and live on the new planets NASA discovered. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy Editor of Politics and News here at MTV, and we wanted to give a big thank you to the great response we've been getting from last week's episode on Carrie James Marshall. If you haven't checked it out, give it a listen. It's fantastic. This week, Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong of Go Nightclubbing discussed their involvement in the early days of New York City punk and no wave and the current state of art and politics. I think today's political environment is going to stimulate art and creation of art the same way that the Nixon years stimulated the creation of punk. But first... Congresswoman Maxine Waters is in her 13th term representing the 43rd Congressional District that includes South Central Los Angeles. She's been in public service for 37 years, but only recently went viral thanks to several cable news show appearances where she made it clear she's no fan of the current administration and has no time to pretend this is politics as usual. No, it's classified and we can't tell you anything. All I can tell you is the FBI director has no credibility. Luckily, this week she did make time for the stakes and our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith. All right, so last week, when those two stories emerged about contact between Russian intelligence and Donald Trump's presidential campaign, I saw the hashtag Trump impeachment party trending on Twitter. And I felt that was a little bit premature for a number of reasons, which we'll get into. But first of all, because that party would probably be at your house (laughs) and you would have sent the invitations. Um, Congresswoman, how much trouble is America in right now? Well, I think that America is in trouble. This administration is absolutely chaotic. Uh, They cannot get it together. Not only did they have the plan uh, to ban travel and targeting Muslims and certain countries, they're at each other's throats in the White House. Americans should be concerned. You've said that you believe that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians to interfere in our elections and that there is more to come. What can Congress do and what can the American public do? I think the Intelligence Committee of the Senate uh, is going to dig deeper. They're the ones who are saying, protect all of the records, don't get rid of anything dealing with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what makes me optimistic about the possibility. I think that Trump has stepped over the line uh, colluding uh, with uh, Putin and the Kremlin. And I think that for the very patriotic members of Congress, even the more conservative ones that I don't get along with, they don't like the fact that he may have been involved in undermining our democracy. That is serious. And so if the investigations are done properly and if they dig deeply, I think that they're going to understand why Putin loves Trump so much and why Trump loves Putin so much and why this president has so many of his associates around him who are involved with oil and gas. McCain went so far as to say that the way that Trump has been treating the media and saying that the media is the enemy of the people, that's how you get to dictatorships. I want to go back to the Women's March in Washington, the day after the inauguration, where you spoke about his cabinet nominees. One of the most fascinating results of that day may be the thousands of women who have expressed an interest in running for office. What do you think a young woman needs to know about getting started down that path and about working within the system to change the system? Well, first of all, I'm excited about the new involvement and the interests of our millennials. And you're absolutely right. 
they've started to talk about running for office, and it's so very possible. I think in order to run for office, just kind of understand what campaigns are all about and, you know, how to help choose people who can organize the kind of campaign that will make you successful, understand what it means to raise money and know who you want to get money from and who you don't want to get money from. Be prepared to, you know, spend a lot of energy out walking, knocking on doors, talking to people, and let's not, and I don't think they will, get involved in the way campaigns have evolved today, and that is just looking for a consultant to make an image for you and go up on television. I don't think they want that. They showed us with Bernie Sanders that they like grassroots uh, politicking. And when they came out by the march all over the country and all over the world, uh, they're showing their continued interest, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about the fact that somehow they've connected with me and they're following me, and they're tweeting and retweeting, and they are calling me Auntie Maxine, and they're, <laughs> they're calling me uh, Queen of Shade now. And I'm saying to my grandchildren, what shade? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got like an urban dictionary available in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to go actually for a little bit further back. In 1990, you were one of the founding members of African American Women for Reproductive Freedom. Now, what concerns related specifically to reproductive rights do you have with this new administration? Well, let me just say, yeah, I go back, uh, you know, really far. I was a part of the uh, women's movement. I'm a feminist. And so I've been involved with um, reproductive rights and freedom of choice for a long time, working with Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and Patsy Mink and all of the women who were in the forefront of the women's movement. And we have to fight very hard because this issue is one that has been on the right-wing Republican agenda for many years, and they've tried everything that they possibly can to get rid of uh, assistance to poor women. They want to get rid of Planned Parenthood. As a matter of fact, they are involved with, you know, dealing with women's health issues of all kinds. We'll be back after this quick break. Now, I can't help but ask you about the president's press conference last week and the interaction that he had with White House correspondent April Ryan, who, like us, is black, asking, you know, are, are they friends of yours about the you know, Congressional Black Caucus, what have you? I found that moment revealing in a number of ways. What did you see there? Well, you know, it was absolutely inappropriate. You know what it reminded me of? All you people know each other. <laughs> uh, just go over there and get them together for me. Uh, did not respect the fact that she was a professional journalist. Uh, did not respect the fact that we don't all know each other and that that was inappropriate for him to even ask her to do that. As a matter of fact, if he wanted someone uh, to talk with the Black Caucus or to get them together, his office should be organized that that's somebody's responsibility to do that. But he doesn't know enough. Congresswoman, I know you've said that you're not interested in meeting with President Trump or Steve Bannon or the rest of the gang, because why bother meeting with people who disrespect you? With that in mind, if that meeting with the Congressional Black Caucus does happen, would you attend? No, I'm not going to meet with uh, Donald Trump. I'm not going to go to the State of the Union address. I did not go to the inauguration. And for uh, our leader, Cedric Richmond, who will meet with him and some of the others, that's okay. That's fine. I have chosen to manage my life in a certain way. 
And I do everything that I can to respect people, to honor other folks. And uh, this man has shown us that he respects nobody. And so why would I meet with someone I don't trust? I don't respect him. I don't believe anything that he says. He's one of the biggest liars I've ever seen in my life. And I see no reason to sit down with him. And every time he talks about wanting to do something for the black community, he throws Chicago in your face and talk about uh, Rahm Emanuel is not doing anything in Chicago. And he's going to go in there. He's going to clean it all up. Yeah, just like he's going to build a wall. Right. We're approaching the 25th anniversary of the L.A. riots. And it gets me thinking about what uh, this law and order America that Trump is promising would actually look like. Well, I think I think er, I think everybody can agree that we've had serious problems. And whether you're talking about what happened with many of the young black males who unarmed who were killed, we have problems that we have to deal with. What bothers me about Jeff Sessions is he does not believe that the federal government should interfere with or bother with local police jurisdictions. That's bothersome. As you know, because the Obama administration went into uh, Ferguson, they were able to determine that people had been treated unfairly uh, with the way that they gave out warrants and tickets and all of those little towns leading out of St. Louis, Missouri. And I know those towns. I'm from Kenlock, one of those towns. And I know that, you know, they would call ahead and they'd ticket them in one town and then the police would be waiting for them in the next town to ticket them. The warrants would pot up. They would go to jail. And this has been going on for a long time. And then you have police departments where you actually have racism and you have discrimination. And Jeff Sessions does not want to get involved with that. Think that the Federal government has no role with that, and that really does bother me. But we've all got to work to deal with this issue. I am absolutely opposed to, you know, these young men and women being killed, who are unarmed, being stopped uh, by police for no real reason at all. To have a broken taillight is not a reason to get shot and killed. And so I think that we, 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 we have a lot of work to do. And, of course, I don't want to see police officers get killed either. But I think unless we resolve uh, the relationships and the problems that have probably been around for far too long, we're going to continue to see the loss of life on both sides. We're talking on Tuesday, February 21st, hours after President Trump took a tour of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington and then talked about uniting the country. I'll just say clearly that it's impossible for me to take him seriously. So, But aside from, say, resigning, what are some real steps this president needs to take to address the concerns of black citizens? Well, first of all, I think that he cannot be taken seriously. He had... Uh, some kind of a meeting that was supposed to be about black history a few weeks ago. And it seems that he thought Frederick Douglass was still alive and said he was doing a good job. I mean, he didn't even take time to read his notes. I don't take him seriously when he talks about wanting to do things for the black community. As, as I see it, actions speak louder than words. You know, stop saying what you're going to do and do it. He came out with executive orders when he first went into the White House. Where's his executive orders, you know, 
doing something for the minority communities uh, that should be done. I don't believe him, and I think he just throws out things uh, and tweets things without having any real thought behind it. Press Secretary Sean Spicer referred to your harsh criticism of the president and your talk of impeachment as, quote, a little political stunt. And conservative media describes your outspokenness as, quote, a meltdown. First, how do you respond to what the press secretary said? Well, I don't really respond to him. First of all, I think Melissa on Saturday Night Live told us who he was. She captured him perfectly. You know, nobody pays attention to him. He's not taken seriously. And I even know that the president was not too happy with him. And so I don't know how long he'll be around. I don't respond to them. I continue to do what I do. They don't like it because I step outside of the ordinary politics and I say what I believe and what I think. And I do believe that if we do our investigations, it's going to lead to this man's uh, impeachment. I don't say you can just willy-nilly impeach him without having the facts. I know that you have to have the documentation, you have to have the facts, but it's there. And to me, all we got to do is connect these dots and follow the money and we'll get him. Now, with regard to the meltdown stuff, though, it plays into this stereotype of the angry black woman. And I just want to know, when are we going to just be able to be mad in public as black folks? I don't know, because I ignore that. And you can, if you think about how well behaved uh, Obama and Michelle Obama were, and they attacked her, called her angry black woman, simply because she said for the first time she really felt good about her country. Here you have Donald Trump, who trashes this country and talks about it's, it's falling apart. It's no good. Everything is broken if you listen to him. And so I don't pay any attention to them. I know who I am. I'm free to be me. I don't let anybody take that away from me. I'm not intimidated by him. And I'm not going to stop being me because of criticism by some right-wing conservatives who don't care about anybody. And they're willing to bring this country down so that they can what they think they can do, and that is be in charge and run it and keep their feet on everybody else's necks. So I don't worry about it. Now, speaking truth to power has been a hallmark of your career for the longest time, Congresswoman. Mm -hmm. And now I feel a bit that your voice is sounding loudest because it is so alone. Why aren't more Democrats talking about impeachment in the way that you are? Well, I, I think people are very cautious. And I do know I tend to, you know, step outside of the box. And you're right. I've been doing this for years in different ways. I simply do what I think is right. And I, I, I'm, you know, anchored in a basic philosophy that cares about people and believes that we have a responsibility to the least of these. And I act on that. And that's who I am. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. What advice do you have for young people who want to resist Trump, especially for listeners living in conservative cities and places maybe that aren't Los Angeles or New York City? Well, you know, here's what I think. I think the Democrats have a responsibility in all of this protesting to educate and to point out the contradictions and help people to understand who he is and what he's all about and show them how he's misled them. Already we see some signs of that. The farmers in California said, 
We never thought he was going to do those deportations. What are we going to do about these crops that we have to turn out? And then up in the coal mining country, people are saying they just realized that it's because of Obamacare that black lung disease is being uh, taken care of, these pre-existing conditions. And so I think little by little, not only are some people going to come to the realization that this is not the person that they want for the president of the United States. Others are going to increasingly get embarrassed by him. The president of the United States, usually Democrat or Republican, is held in high regard all over the world. And for this president to be disinvited even before his 100 days are up should tell you an awful lot. And I think that the young people, I have confidence that they are going to, for the most part, see and understand. I think they're going to pay attention to politics in a greater way, greater than they've ever done before. And I'm convinced that in the final analysis, his hardcore supporters are going to be small in numbers. And it's going to be, you know, like the election. If the popular vote had decided who the winner would be, it would be Hillary Clinton. Don't forget that she had the popular vote. So I'm very optimistic about young people and about organizing and about helping this president uh, to be impeached. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jamil Smith for MTV News speaking with Congresswoman Maxine Waters. We'll be back after this quick break. Video artists Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong spent their early 20s documenting New York City's punk and no-wave scenes from 1975 to 1980. They went to shows at legendary clubs like CBGB and Mud Club, equipped with porta pack cameras, and captured performances by bands like The Cramps, Richard Hell, The Dead Boys, and Iggy Pop. The young women had a public access TV show called Night Clubbing, where they originally showed their footage, and now their videos have been digitized and are archived in the downtown collection at NYU's Fales Library. There weren't many people filming the scene in the late 70s, so their videos are a time capsule. Last weekend, podcast producer Mukta Mohan met Ivers and Armstrong in Los Angeles at a screening of their favorite videos from the vault. She interviewed them at a restaurant nearby to learn more about the NYC punk scene and hear why they thought it was important to capture it. So you've both shot over 300 hours of footage capturing the New York City punk and no-wave scene in the late 70s. How did you first get started? I started in 1975 with a group called Metropolis Video, six other guys. And uh, the first thing we shot was the great unsigned band festival in August of 1975. And that day we shot Talking Heads, Blondie, and Heartbreakers with Richard Hell. We worked together for about a year, then they thought I was crazy for doing this because there wasn't any money to be made, so they left me. So I met Emily, and we were working together at Manhattan Cable Television in the public access department, and I said, you know, do you like punk? And so I took her to see Patti Smith, and, you know, we started working together. It was fantastic. And Pat and I, because we worked in the public access department, we were already using portable video equipment. It had just come out, like the portable revolution had just started. So we were very familiar with the equipment to to taping things like community board meetings and stuff. So it was really easy for us to take it down to CBGB's because we knew how to use it and we were able to get it from the cable station. 
the entire culture of punk was a DIY culture. I mean, that's everybody knows that. You know, there was something that I needed to do. I couldn't really play an instrument. I couldn't really sing. But I knew that I was looking at something that was absolutely iconic. It was going to become iconic. So I had video cameras. And so to me, that was my, my thing. That's what I could do. That's what I could, could contribute to the scene, which was a real thing. You wanted to contribute something. So that's what I did. So what did the rest of New York feel like at the time? Because punk was a subculture. Like it was still a very, very small scene. What made it this special place to you? Like how did you know that it was important to capture? We lived in lower Manhattan and New York was in very dire financial straits at the time. And there was a very repressive political culture. It was like, you know, Nixon and the rest of everything that followed. So our crowd, our CBGB's crowd was really very small. Pat is my downstairs neighbor, so we live on Orchard Street a few blocks from CB's. So it was kind of our local also where we went to have a beer. But there was only really a few hundred people at the most, maybe even less. And the musicians were the same people that were hanging at the bar drinking. And it was a very small subculture in a very repressed, very underserved city. Lower Manhattan was dirty. They were you know, not picking up the garbage. We had a huge snowstorm and they didn't dig us out for days. So it was, I think that that also was kind of why it thrived. No one had any money. Everybody was very poor, but it was also cheap to live because the rents were incredibly low. Yeah, a lot of people forget that there was a huge economic recession going on at the time. Everyone I knew's parents had gotten, someone had gotten laid off. And I mean, finding a job was a real challenge. I mean, we were lucky that we had jobs at Manhattan Cable at Public Access. And rents were incredibly low, and that's really what saved everybody with the low rents. Why do you think it's important to document subcultures and music scenes? Well, to capture the authenticity. By capturing the authenticity, you really get to show what it is. It's sort of unmediated. Ours was incredibly unmediated. I always call it like the last good time because it was the last unselfconscious time where the musicians really just went out there and performed because honestly they couldn't do anything else. I don't know how possible it is anymore because I think that lack of unselfconsciousness is gone in, in, in our culture. We were sort of like the last tribe, you know what I mean? What do you think the connection between what was happening politically at the time was with the music that was being made, like punk and then later no wave? I think originally punk started because there was no money and uh, so much resentment about Nixon. The no wave stuff, I don't know if that had anything to do with, with politics as much. I think the no wave were, uh, were artists that you know loved the music, but they, they were reacting to the punk music. They thought it was too formalized in a way. And they wanted to just break it down and break it down. They were like real rebels, you know? And, and also to torture their audiences and make them listen to this music that would make their ears bleed practically. I think today's political environment is going gonna, is gonna to stimulate art and creation of art the same way that the Nixon years stimulated the creation of punk. You know, it sucks, but it will maybe stimulate the creation of new great art. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was lovely to be in L.A. Hey, thanks for interviewing us. That was podcast producer Mukta Mohan in conversation with Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong of Go Nightclubbing. You can watch their rare performance videos at www.gonightclubbing.com. 
That's it for The Stakes this week. I'm Julianne Ross, signing off. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes to help everyone else find us. Talk to us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and see some behind-the-scenes photos on Instagram at MTV Podcasts. Also, if this is your first time listening to us, subscribe so you can get the newest episodes delivered to you, wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're curious about the other shows we make here at MTV News, you can head to podcast.mtv.com. The Stakes is produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to everyone that submitted and reported stories this week, and thanks for listening.